This is our series on the book of Romans, and in today's lesson, it's all about appearances versus reality. So people appear to be one thing, and he's going to make the case that they're another. So appearances versus reality, and in this clip from Kramer, appearances to be something, Kramer appears to be something he is not. Okay, in today's lesson, uh, last week, if you remember, uh, we were probably reading about the people that Paul was talking about in chapter 1 as the pagan idol worshipers, you know, the, the foreigners who have rejected God, rebelled against God, and we compared them to the prodigal son. Uh, and, and we looked at that and we probably all said, yeah, those people, they deserve God's judgment without a doubt. But when we think about ourselves, in a little bit different light, don't we, right? We kind of think of ourselves, but, you know, we are not in that category. We're the good people, right? We're the moral people. We do the good works. We give the money. We, you know. So today, in today's lesson, he turns the spotlight on the good guy, right? You know, me, the good guy, right? That's the way we think of ourselves. And so it's great because it's very unexpected. And I think as the Romans, his audience, the church there at Romans reading this, they were probably right there with Paul uh, cheering him on in chapter 1 going, yeah, those guys deserve judgment. And now Paul, okay, now I'm going to talk about you. Because if you notice, all through chapter 1 it's they, 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 and then all of a sudden in verse 1 of chapter 2, it's you. <laughs> I hate it when that's you, don't you? That's terrible. And so, uh, you know, it is about, you know, appearances versus reality. And Jesus always did a great job of explaining to his audience, and he would always use the Pharisees as an example. If you remember, the Pharisees were those very ultra-religious uh, zealots who looked at themselves as being keepers of the law and they were good and they were moral and they did all kinds of religious ritual. You know, they, in their own vision, they had it together. But Jesus clearly, clearly showed that they did not. And he even called them hypocrites to their face. So they had the appearance of being good and right and moral and righteous. But God knows their heart. He knows what's inside And God judges what's in your heart. He judges your intentions and your thoughts and (laughs) what you're really thinking and you're really motivated by instead of just your appearances. We judge each other by appearances. You know, we have no way to know what somebody's thinking or what their real intentions or motives are, but God knows. And so this chapter 2 is about the, quote, the good guys. Now, I was reading this uh, psychologist who was talking about something called the Elvis Syndrome. And really the article is about hypocrisy and how rampant it is in the human race. And they called this the Elvis Syndrome because Elvis Presley, he used to stand at the piano at Graceland, you know, where he lived, and he'd sing hymns with the boys and he'd have a tear in his eye and he'd think about you know, his mom at home and, 
and all the religious services that he'd been to. And then he'd go upstairs and take a big handful of drugs and he'd have a sex with a different woman every night. But he was able to convince himself that the real Elvis was the guy singing the hymns with a tear in his eye. That's the real Elvis in his own mind. You know, he, he, he fooled himself. And that's what the human race does as well. Uh, another, another great uh, example I saw with, was Al Capone. You know, this is hilarious. This is an actual quote of Al Capone after they sent him to jail. He said, no one has ever been as mistreated as me. All I did was help people do what they wanted to do anyway, which is have a good time. He said, that's what I do. I provide services for people to have a good time, but everybody gave me an unfair bad rap. The truth is, I'm a very good person. Al Capone. If he can fool himself... One comedian said, a Christian is someone who goes to church on Sunday to ask forgiveness for what he did Saturday night and for what he's going to do again Monday. So we're all aware of, of this problem of what you say versus what you do, what you appear to be versus what you really are. And these, these, you know, Al Capone and Elvis, those are extreme examples, but they make a point, you know. Uh, reality is that the whole human race is like this. They're able to suppress the truth about themselves. In their, in their pride, you know, they, they want to be a certain, they want to be good, they mean well, but they all fall short. You know, again, Paul says it in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so the bottom line is that everybody needs Christ. That's the bottom line. That's what Paul's getting to. Don't just look at other people like these, the people in chapter 1, the pagan idol worshiper, and say, yeah, they deserve God's judgment. You need to also realize that you as well are going to be judged by God, and God knows the thoughts and motivations and intentions of your heart. He knows the real you. And so we all need Jesus. The fact is we're all, we're all like Christopher Columbus. He did not know where he was going, and he didn't know where he was when he got there, and he did it all on borrowed money. <laughs> and that's us. We don't, know, we don't know who we are or where we're going, and when we get there, we don't know what's, you know. And, uh, and we just assume that God thinks the same way that we do. But the Bible tells us clearly that God holds us to a higher standard than we hold ourselves, Right? So the human race, all of us, we make two uh, big errors. Number one, we underestimate God's holy standard. We underestimate how high that bar is set. And you take the Ten Commandments, and if, if you take it to an absolute standard, you'll see that you break every one of those Ten Commandments, as hard as that is for some of us to believe. So we underestimate God's holy standard, and we also underestimate our moral, ethical ability. We think we can keep all the laws. We think we're, we can do what's right and what's good, but we don't quite make it. Sometimes we slip and fall, and we just kind of, well, that was just one time, and I won't ever do that again, you know, like that. Or I really needed to. Or it's actually best that 
for that person that I tell them that lie. Or, you know, however you can rationalize it, that's what we do, right? And so the greatest example of that is in Exodus 19, you know, when, when Moses led the whole nation of Israel to Mount Sinai, and God said, go and talk to the elders, told Moses, go talk to the elders, tell them I want to make a covenant, a deal, a contract with them. And here's the deal. I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to set you apart. You're going to be my mediatorial people on earth. I'm going to bless you in every way. I'm going to give you a land, your own land. And in return, your part of the covenant is to keep my law, my perfect holy standard. So Moses goes back to the people and says, here's the deal. You want to make the deal? And they all said, oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, don't you want to hear what the law is first? Oh, no, we can do it. (laughs) Morally, ethically naive about their own ability. We all think, you know, we can keep all these rules and regulations. The fact is we're never going to live up to God's standard. So everybody needs Jesus. What does happen to us? We mean well. We have good intentions. Jesus explained it great with the parable of the soils. What happens? We hear the word of God. We want to keep it. We mean well. But what happens? Jesus says, the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches distract us, derail us. That's profound, isn't it? Think about that. The worries of the world. Think of all the problems you have all the time, and you have to work out solutions and put out all those fires, and you have to find a way to make things work when there's trouble. So you cut corners, you do whatever you need to do, you know, just get her done attitude. The ends justify the means. The greatest lie ever told. The ends justify the means, but that's what we do. And so Jesus nailed it. The worries of the world, the deceitfulness, riches, We look out there and we just think, you know, if we had that stuff, if we had that much money, if we had, we'd have it made. So what do we need to do to get it? And we always go too far, right? It's called greed. And Jesus nailed all of us with that comment, right? So uh, Jesus also uh, convicted an audience with the Sermon on the Mount. We've all uh, loved the Sermon on the Mount. What did he say there? Matthew 5, 20. Their standard of righteousness at the time was the Pharisees. They were the ones that kept the law. They had the most knowledge, and they claimed to be righteous. They claimed to be keeping the law, and they were very critical of everybody else. And so Jesus looked at them in his audience, and he said to all the people like us, he pointed out these super religious people, the Pharisees, and he said, unless your righteousness exceeds these Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom of God. Can you imagine the shock, right, that that would create? It just, it would, you know, then who can? <laughs> would probably be the, 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 what they're thinking. But what Jesus said was, after that, he says, okay, let me give you six examples. And they're in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 5, he lists, you know, six examples, of, among them murder and adultery and lying And basically what he says, you've heard it said, thou shalt not murder. But I tell you, if you hate somebody in your own heart, if you're that angry at someone in your thoughts and in your heart, you have committed, you know, God's view, not my view, 
not people's view, but in God's view, you've, you've broken that law. Same thing with adultery. Remember Jimmy Carter? <laughs> he said, I, I lust for women. I said, president doesn't need to tell us that, right? <laughs> but, I mean, he, he got it. He realized that he was a sinner because it wasn't that he committed adultery. He didn't, but he lusted after uh, members of the opposite sex. And so he realized, and that's what Jesus was getting at. And lying is the most obvious example to prove. I mean, we all lie when we need to. You know, I've said, I don't ever lie unless I really need to. <laughs> Never. And my dad used to say, well, I did it for their own good, and your mother doesn't need to know that. And <laughs> right? And so that's, I mean, but that's just kind of the way we're wired, right? So... We, we tell lies, but uh, Jesus said, you know, God knows. And just because you can rationalize it doesn't make it right. And so, he, as I said, he gave six examples there of the Pharisees breaking all these laws in the Ten Commandments. And that's what he means by it, unless your righteousness exceeds them. And, of course, what Jesus was getting to is, Again, all have sinned, fall short of the glory of God. So everybody needs a Savior. Everybody needs Jesus. I've, I've run into people before, you know, who, who were saying, well, I'm a good person. I think I'm going to heaven because I'm a good person. And, and I said, so you're perfect? Oh, no. People tell me, I'm not Mother Teresa. I mean, it's not that I'm Billy Graham. Well, here's my newsflash to them. I've read Mother Teresa's book. I've read Billy Graham's book, and guess what? They both say they're sinners. They both recognize their own sin, right? So if that's your standard, sorry. So look at chapter 2. Again, after looking at Romans 1, uh, we've, we've heartily agreed with him about those pagan idol worshipers, but now he turns to us, the good person, the good, moral, upright person. You do good deeds, you give money, you help people out, uh, you mean well, but still, God knows your heart and knows that you still need Jesus as your Savior. All right? So he changes audience. Therefore, so he links you know, what he's going to say now to the previous thought. Therefore, you, you, you and I here are without excuse as well. And here's his argument. Every man of you who passes judgment, for in that you judge another, you condemn yourself, for you who judge practice the same thing. Uh, and so what's he saying there? Why does he start that way? He's saying that when you say that you're a good person, what are you saying? You're actually better. You're like the Pharisees. In a way, you're saying, I, I have a higher standard than these other people, you know, who are not good people, whoever they are. And we kind of set ourselves up as judges. We, we decide these are the good people, and they're all your friends and your family, and these are the bad people, right? And so what he's saying is, really, you're the judge of who's good and bad? I don't think so. God alone is the judge of who's good and who's bad. And so what he's saying is when you set yourself up like that and try to divide people up and put yourself in the good category, 
you're wrong. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. And you do the same things as the persons you're condemning. So in God's view, even though appearances are that you're better, and in people's judgment, you definitely are better. No one's saying that you're actually not better than those bad people. You are. But it's not people's standards. It's God's perfect, holy, righteous standard. So it'd be like going to a track meet, and let's say, you know, Jeff can only jump three feet. So you say, I jump four, I win. No, to win, you've got to jump eight feet. And you look at this bar up there, well, I could never jump eight feet. And Paul's saying, exactly. God sets the bar of righteousness too high for us to keep it. And so we need a Savior. We need Christ. So verse 3, do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment, when you look at others and say, I'm a good person and that's a bad person, do you suppose that when you do that, uh, when you pass judgment upon those who practice such things, and then you do the same thing? So again, if you asked me if I was a liar, I'd say, I'm not a liar. But then, sooner or later, I'm going to go lie, just as you are, right? And that's what he's saying. You're actually judging yourself, which was an amazing, that's an amazing thing to, to think about, Right? You have a standard that you hold others to and you don't like liars. You, you detest liars. But then at some point in time, you actually do that yourself. And that's what Paul's saying. So you can't judge other people. You can't divide people up by who's good and who's bad. You're not the judge of that. And God, if God holds you to that standard, you also will fail. Verse 4, or do you think lightly of the riches of God's kindness? If you're saying that you're good enough on your own, then you're taking God for granted, right? And that's what he's saying. Do you think lightly of the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? God is so patient that he is waiting for us to come and repent. And so we think, well, because lightning hadn't struck me. You know, I've been lying for 60 years. Lightning never struck me yet, so it must be okay. Everything's great. And he's saying, no, that lightning has not struck you because God is patient and kind and waiting for you to come. We have a free will to come or not come. God can't make us love him. And God is currently, at this time, being patient, waiting for people to come, giving everybody a a huge opportunity that they take or don't take. But because of your stubbornness, verse 5, if you remain stubborn and don't come, look at this, verse 5, but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. So all the people who are suppressing the truth, not coming to God now, it's just building up. It's not that God God doesn't notice. He's just letting it build up. And then 
on that final day that he has set for judgment, then it will all come out. And so between now and then, it's very important to have Jesus as your Savior. This is whole point. You think you're getting away with something? You're not getting away with anything. It's just being stored up. In verse 6, he quotes from the Old Testament about judgment day. God who will render to every man according to his deeds. So you'll be judged by your works. You can either be judged by your works or you can be judged by Jesus Christ's work. Let me see. That's a pretty obvious choice, isn't it? And that's Paul's point. And to those who by perseverance do good and seek for glory and honor and immortality and eternal life through Christ, but to us, but to those who are selfishly ambitious and don't, so there's the contrast, the whole world and, and his audience, the you that he's talking to, those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, they will get wrath and indignation. So those who are stubborn and won't come, God's wrath builds up, and so they will get that wrath and God's indignation on that last day. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. Well, that's interesting because in other places he's talking about God's grace is offered in what way? To the Jew first and also the Greek. By that he means Jesus was a Jew and he came to Israel first. So they had the first opportunity and then the gospel went to the Gentiles. Well, guess what? The other side is true also. God's wrath, his judgment will also come to both people in the same order. But glory and honor and peace to every man who does good to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For there is no partiality with God. So in that judgment, on judgment day, if you're judged alone by your own works and who you are by yourself, there's no partiality. And I think being a Jew, he has lived in a system where they show partiality. They believe that they were, Paul was Jewish, so he can say this, they believed that they were the chosen people. They believed they had an edge and advantage. They believed that God had set them apart and they had it made. If you're related to Abraham, come on in, <laughs> right? And, of course, you remember Jesus' arguments with them, and, and he made just the opposite. Uh, he made just the opposite point. He said, don't think just because you're related to Abraham that's a, you know, a pass. That's a get-out-of-jail-free pass. It's not. He says it's the spiritual sons of Abraham that the promise will be fulfilled in. The spiritual sons, those who believe. And so going all the way back to Genesis 15, how was Abraham saved? It says it clearly there. He believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. So just as Abraham was saved by the grace of God through his belief, we also... And then verse 12, for all who have sinned without the law and also who will perish without the law and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. So whether you're Jewish and have the law or you're not and don't have the law, you, you, will, be, you will be judged. And you go, well, wait a minute. That doesn't seem fair. 
If we don't have the law, how can we possibly know what to do? And he's going to go on, and, and as he's already really laid out, he said, everybody has a moral standard. And they not only have that moral standard, you know, for other people, it's for themselves. You have a philosophy you live by. Maybe it's the Ten Commandments. Maybe it's the uh, Golden Rule. Uh, whatever standard you set there, you know, God's going to hold you to that standard. Even if you don't have the Torah, right, or the Ten Commandments, maybe no one ever told you, maybe you never looked at a Bible, maybe you grew up somewhere that they didn't have that, but every person, God made us with a moral compass, with a conscience, and everyone has a standard, wherever you are, whoever you are, you have a standard that you live by. And he's saying that you violate your own standard. And like I said, the easiest example of that is lying. Now, I, don't, I don't know of any other religion or culture that doesn't believe lying is wrong, yet they all lie. <laughs> and that's what he's saying there. So uh, whether you're Jewish and have the law or you're Christians and you have a Bible or whether you're whoever, God's going to hold you to a moral standard that he has created you with. We're all born with a conscience. We're all born you know, we're made in the image of God, and, part, and that is partially meaning that we have a moral compass. We have a moral sense. We do set a standard for our own selves and the people around us. And he's saying that we all break our own standard, which, of course, is true, easily proved, easily proved. I'll come over to your house and show you tonight if you doubt it. I'm kidding. So he says, verse 14, For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, you know, that moral standard, they do right and wrong. They know it's not right to murder or steal or lie or commit it. They all know that. And they do that instinctively. They break those laws. It becomes a law to them because that's their moral standard. And then that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience, bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. Verse 15, I think, is totally awesome. Try to just look at that for a minute in your Bible, verse 15, and analyze that. You know what he's saying? This is my daily experience. I think it's yours too. What happens? You have a moral compass, you have a conscience. And so what happens? When someone, you know, let's say someone asks you to uh, give an answer to something that will get you in trouble or cost you money. Right? This little voice speaks to you. Tell the truth. Or even worse, if you just kind of jump out there and lie, you know, so it doesn't cost you money or doesn't get you in trouble, the little voice speaks to you, your conscience says, that isn't right. You lied. But what happens then? What does it say? Alternately. So you have a conscience, and then what do you do? You rationalize. Well, I really needed to do that for their own good. Or there's no reason to cause problem and, and tell them that. Or, you know, uh, as soon as I get that money, then I'll become good. 
And whatever you need to do to rationalize what you want to do to get you what you think you need. And that's what Paul's saying there. Isn't that great? That's, that's our actual experience. They show the work of the law written in their hearts. It's, it's, it's within them, a moral standard. And their conscience bears them with Their conscience convicts you. You know better than that. You know that's not yours. You know that's not the truth. And then what do you do? Your thoughts go to defending what you just did, rationalizing. Boy, I think he nailed it. I think he nailed every one of us right there. How do we, why do we do what we know is wrong? How do we get away with it? How do we deal with it internally? We rationalize it until we finally get desensitized. We can either ignore it or get desensitized to it after we've done it enough. We get to be really good at it. Some are better at it than others. But that's what we all do, and, and that's Paul's experience. It, it, think of this. It's endemic to the human race. If you go back to the beginning in the Bible, think of all the characters in the Bible, how they rationalize what they've done. Adam, what did you do? The woman talked me into it. And she's the woman you gave me. He not only blamed it on Eve, he blamed it on God. Cain, remember the Cain and Abel story? Cain, where's Abel? Am I my brother's keeper? Am I responsible for him? Abraham, what are you doing in Egypt? I told you to go to Canaan. Well, we were hungry and the place you sent me had no food and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Why'd you lie about your wife? Because Pharaoh took your wife because you lied about her. Well, you know, she's real attractive and they might have killed me for her. And besides that, they offered me a herd of goats. That's true. Go back and read it. Jacob, why, do you, why did you deceive and lie to your father? Well, dad liked my brother best, and so he deserved that. The sons of Jacob, why did you sell your brother Joseph into slavery? Well, he was boasting that he was going to rule over us, and we couldn't let that happen. Saul, New Testament now, Saul Oh, oh, the king Saul. Saul, why did you disobey? Samuel was late and I was in a hurry. Right? David, David, why did you commit adultery? Well, I was lonely and bored and I was middle-aged crazy. Wasn't my fault. And you can go on down the list. Every single Bible character did it. Just exactly what Paul's saying. Are we better than Abraham? Are we better than Jacob, David, are we better than those guys? No. They represent us really well. That's who we are as well. And so, yeah, we need Jesus as our Savior. I saw this other deal about this criminal. This is like the Al Capone deal. This guy who was uh, who robbed you know hundreds of uh, banks, and they said. What if it, did you have a conscience? Did you know what you're doing wrong? He said, no, well, I didn't do anything wrong. He said, I had, a, I had a standard that I kept. He said, my standard is I will not kill anyone unless I have to. 
likeness. They make me. I will take cash and food stamps, no checks. I'll rob only at night. I won't wear a mask. I'll not rob a mini-mart or 7-Eleven. If I get chased by cops on foot, I'll get away. I'll rob only seven months out of the year. I will enjoy robbing from the rich to give to the poor. Really? <laughs> this guy rationalized to the, you know, to the hill. So he had a sense of morality, but it was flawed. Obviously, you can see it. And we know that he wasn't judged by those standards that he set for himself. He was judged by the higher law of the state or the higher law of God, just as we are. All right? So Paul goes on, and in verse 16, he's talking about what will happen on Judgment Day. How, how will God judge? On the day when, according to the gospel, the good news... God will judge the secrets of men through Jesus Christ. He said a lot in that. He's going to judge the secrets, not just the appearances, not just what's outward, but he's also going to address what's in, judge what's inside, the secrets of people. He's going to do it through Christ, a filter of Christ. And so if you have Christ or you don't have Christ, you see, it's going to be all important in that judgment. But if you bear the name Jew, now he switches gears. Here's a pivot. So that's the good person, the moral person, generally us. But what about the super double extra hyper religious person? We all know this guy. Never missed church in his life. Always tithes. Keeps every rule, etc., etc. right? Paul says, well, that was me. So I, let me tell you, I know about this guy. And so Paul addresses his own countrymen, the Jews. And he says, okay, you guys are the most religious guys I know, and I was one of you. And what does he say to them? Same thing, they're condemned. Same deal. Verse 19, you're confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind and a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of truth. So you think you've got it all. You're the, you're the person. You're the embodiment of knowledge. You have all the knowledge and all the truth. Here's the problem. You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one should not steal, do you steal? Let me just say, you've heard me say this before, but I read Josephus, you know, that great historian. And when Rome conquered Jerusalem and sacked it, they found more gold in the depositories that the priests kept. They found so much gold that when they took it back to Rome, it halved the price of gold. What does that tell you? How'd they get that? Exactly. And Paul knows he was, he was one of them. He also knows, uh, you say that one should not commit adultery. Do you commit adultery? They had set up a loophole that the men, the Pharisees, religious leaders, could divorce their wife just by writing her a note. And so the Pharisees typically had four, five, six wives in succession. Right? 
unbelievable. What did they do? They legalized what they wanted to do anyway. They wanted to commit adultery, so they just found a way to legalize it through this divorce system that they came up with. And that's what Paul's saying. I was there. I know. I was one of you. It's just adultery, no matter what you call it. And so he's, he's revealing what they're really like. They have the law. They try to keep it. They have a religious facade. And if you remember Jesus, uh, he not only dressed them down in all those stories that you're familiar with, but at the very end, right before the crucifixion in Matthew 23, just so there's no doubt, because a lot of people think the Pharisees were really good people that, you know, probably are saved, they'll probably be in heaven. Well, Jesus says there in Matthew 23, you can look at it, he says, they're going to hell. They rejected Christ, they're, they're going to hell. I didn't say that, he did. It's in Matthew 23. That's where he called them whitewashed tombs. Because he said, you're like these tombs. They're painted white on the outside to look like they're clean and nice. But on the inside, they're full of rotten, decaying bodies. That's a rough comparison, isn't it? Boy, that's, that's rough as right. And so then he goes on after he, after he nails the religious people. He, he compares circumcision, which is this ritual that they were depending on. They said, I have the sign of the covenant. I have circumcision, so I'm saved. And he said, that doesn't do it. What you need is circumcision of the heart. Not just physical signs that you're God's people, but of the heart as well. And then in in, uh, chapter 3, you can see it. After he goes through the good people, the moral people, the religious people, he gets to verse 9 to his point of this whole discussion. And that is, Universal condemnation. God will universally judge everybody. And so Paul puts together a whole bunch of Old Testament passages to prove. Because what did they, the Jews that were, uh, had turned Christians, they knew the Old Testament. And so Paul can say, what have we found then in verse 9? Chapter 3, verse 9. What have we found? What's the conclusion, in other words? What's the summary of everything I've been saying? For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep on and on and on. That, that's everybody. And if you're sitting there thinking, well, well I know a lot of good people. Well, in comparison to other people, you're right. I agree with you completely. We all know a lot of good people. You are good people compared to others. Well, what has Paul done? been doing for two chapters? Comparing you and I and himself to God's holy, righteous standard. Can you jump, high jump eight feet? No. Can you perfectly keep God's standard? Paul says, no. And that's his point there by summing it all up like that through the Old Testament passages. It's not saying that there's not plenty of good people compared to other people. He's just saying in God's view, from God's viewpoint, this is the way it is. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then 
uh, I saw this on this religious woman who you would know, and I've thought about naming her as a politician's wife, but uh, decided not to. Didn't want to get too personal. But she, she really, literally said, religion is what's important. I go to church, but I also chart the stars, do my horoscope. I have my palm read regularly, and I subscribe to all the best psychics. And so this guy said, I have a question for you. What do you do when your fortune cookie contradicts your horoscope? <laughs> Let me conclude with this. Last week we saw the prodigal son of Luke 15. We saw that he well rep- represents the uh, pagan idol worshiper in chapter 1. The prodigal son, you know, he went off, he's wild and crazy and rebellious, right? We, we can relate to that. We know those people, or you may be those people that are wild and crazy and rebellious. But don't miss that. In the parable, there's actually two sons. And in fact, theologians, act, they don't call it the parable of the prodigal son, but theologians call it the prodigal of the two sons, right? Because it's just as much about the second son, the older son, as the younger son. The younger son is... Uh, easily identifiable as the rebellious, wild, and crazy son who openly commits, breaks all these rules and laws. But who who does the older son represent in the parable? Why does Jesus include this guy? Well, don't forget, in, in that parable in Luke 15, 2, he told that parable because the Pharisees were there and they were complaining that Jesus was reaching out to the tax collectors and the prostitutes and all the, all the known sinners, meaning the younger son, the wild and rebellious son. So Jesus was actually telling the parable. His parable is an answer to the Pharisees. He's speaking to the Pharisees to explain why he's reaching out to these wild, rebellious people. But in the parable, he puts them in there too. The Pharisees are the older son, okay? He answers their question about the sinners through the younger son, but he clearly, the older son represents the Pharisees. They appear as good, just like the older brother. He appears real good. He stays home. He does, he works hard. He does the will of the father. He's the good guy, right? He does the right thing. He's moral. He's upright. What's the problem? What was inside of him? And you see at the end of the story what's really in here. Hatred, hypocrisy, pride, jealousy, greed. He was unloving. He was selfish. That's the real older brother. Even though on the outside he looked great. He did all the right things. He had the appearance. He claimed to be righteous. That's what he's told his dad. I can't believe you let that guy back. I'm the good one. So Romans 1 is about the younger, rebellious, prodigal son. Romans 2 is about the older brother, the good one. Paul was the older brother. He was the good one. He was the moral one. He was the religious one. So Paul knows firsthand And again, the point is that they both, both brothers need Jesus. 
Both brothers need Jesus to atone for their sins. Let me close in prayer. Lord, thank you so much that we have Jesus, that you provide Jesus for us. And I pray, Lord, that no matter how we compare to other people, no matter how we stand up in comparison and contrast, Lord, please convict us that we need Jesus in every way. We need Jesus to save us. We also need to live by faith in Jesus and the Spirit of God who's leading us and guiding us on a daily basis. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.